So our course is apologetics or understanding worldviews, making sense of nonsense when you start looking at some of the disconnect. Um, when you start looking at some of the answers the worldviews, other worldviews have for the big questions of life, they don't make much sense. Um, where we're headed with the studies tonight, we're going to talk about why we need the study. Um, then next week we're going to get into what are the, the major worldviews and the big differences. And we're going to talk the next week about um, how do you know what you know? Um, how do you know truth? Um, you know things through reason and experience and things like that, but those are all subjective. And without the Bible, you really don't have an objective source of truth. So we'll need to talk about the Bible and how we can know that it's true and reliable. And then we'll talk about evolution and versus creation, some of the evidences, probably get in a little bit of young earth and stuff like that. Um, does God exist? The first question in that list was, name four reason, uh, proofs for the existence of God. You know, hopefully by the end of the course you'll be going, okay, well there's the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument, and the ontological argument. And you'll know what those mean. But that kind of stuff should, you know, start to click. <clears throat> um, what's the basis of ethics and morality? If you don't have a God, then you really can't have a standard for morality. It's just might makes right. Um, or what the, whatever the culture votes for. Why is there evil and suffering? Sometimes people will use that as an argument. If God is good and God is in control and all-powerful, then how can he allow evil? Well, how do we answer that? And although we can answer the atheist and the pantheist when they argue or ask that question, we still struggle with it. So we want to talk about you know, some of the answers um, and why God would allow it. We'll talk about the nature of man. Is he basically good or bad? And how the different worldviews view that. And then what happens after we die? Um, when you've seen that the pantheists have really stupid answers for all of these questions, why would you believe their answer for what happens after you die and add reincarnation to your, you know, um, philosophy or whatever um, when, when nothing else they've said has made sense? Because this is one you do have to take on faith, you know, based on the whole package. And then what is the meaning of history? Is there an overarching uh, meta-narrative, overarching story that explains everything, or is it just a bunch of meaningless um, events? So, first we're going to talk about why we need this study. I once taught a, a class on the, the minor prophets in Sunday school class, and there were seven people who showed up. And in the class next door, they were the elder and his wife were teaching on parenting. They must have had 57 people over there. So, they obviously, more people had a felt need of, you know, help with the parenting. Um, but I guess since this is, these are 65 questions that every parent should be able to answer that kind of helps us be in that category. You obviously wouldn't be here if you didn't feel like we needed to study, but I thought we should go through, you know, the advantages um, of apologetics and learning about worldviews. And the, the first one is it's needed for evangelism. And it used to be that people believed in God, they believed that the Bible was God's word, and so if you, you know, told somebody about um, well, they, they believed that good people went to heaven and bad people went to hell. But if you were talking to somebody, they had a concept of sin. 
And, you know, they, if you showed them something from the Bible, they had a tendency to believe the Bible because, after all, it was the good book. And so, <clears throat> um, the, usual, the usual hurdles were things like apathy or ignorance or, well, I'm just too bad of a sinner and God couldn't save me. But they, you could show them from the scriptures that that's not true. Tim Keller said that the main issue with evangelism in the past was that people knew something about Christianity, but it wasn't personal. They believed in sin, but they had to be shown that they were sinners. So we came up with programs like Evangelism Explosion. We had gospel presentations like the Four Spiritual Laws and the Romans Road. And the purpose was to encourage people to do what they knew. He said they had a Christian intellect, a Christian conscience, but not a Christian heart. Well, that's all changed. Now a lot of people don't believe in God or they don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. You've got all the controversy going around with Bart Ehrman and all these guys and you know, they start to doubt the you know, inerrancy and, and all those things. And so, and even if, those peop- even if people believe in God, a lot of times there's not much agreement on ethics and morality and sin. And they're, quite often they'll just tell you, well, that's just your opinion or that may be true for you, but not for me. And... Um, if you don't know how to answer a question like that, that's maybe, you know, if someone says that, well, that's just your opinion. Well, how do you, you know, how do you answer that? And if you don't know how to answer it, then it makes having a conversation with your coworker a little bit scary, and maybe you're not willing to do that. I remember one time I was um, on an airplane, and I don't have the gift of evangelism, but every once in a while I'll try, and I get to talking to the person, and I give them, you know, talk to them about God, and the answer they gave me was, well, I'm glad you found something that works for you. I was stumped. I didn't know where to go from there. So the conversation was over. J.P. Moreland, on the other hand, who majors in all this stuff and, and um, professor and teaches worldviews and apologetics, he's doing witnessing in the dorm room and he goes into a student's dorm and room and he says, you know, whatever. And the student says, you can't for- force your morality on me. And he goes, oh, okay, well, thank you for your time. And when he walked out, he picked up the guy's stereo and headed out the door. <coughs> and the kid says, what are you doing? You, you know, you can't do that. And J.P. Moreland goes, are you trying to force your morality on me? <laughs> and to make a long story short, the kid, you know, he admitted that he was being uh, intellectually dishonest and, and became a Christian a few weeks later. So, <coughs> you know... Our world, the worldview is changing, and we have to, you know, understand the, the types of arguments that people are going to give us so that we can respond like that when someone, you know, makes a statement like that. <clears throat> and we have the truth on our side. We have the strategic advantage, but I think we need to learn some tactical plans for how to deal with some of these situations. And I think if you can show someone that they're being illogical, a lot of times that's the first step to uh, them, you know, being receptive to to Christ. Back in 1978, I was uh, I wrote a this is junior in high school. I'm 52. You don't have to do the math. Um, I wrote a paper on cults in America. So can you imagine doing that today? But I wrote one on. Uh, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and Christian scientists. So I kind of had an idea what they all believed. It wasn't long after that, that um, might have even been right after I read it out loud to the class, the guy comes up to me and says, well, I think Christian science is the 
the you know real real religion and you should convert. And I said, Tim, you wear glasses, braces, and your mom's in a wheelchair. If everything's the product of your imagination, why would you imagine not being able to see? Imagine crooked teeth, and I can't imagine why your mom wouldn't want to be able to walk. So you don't even believe your own religion. So why would I switch? I don't remember if we were friends after that, but. <coughs> In 1993 or 4, I'm walking across the campus at Dallas Theological Seminary, and this tall blonde guy comes walking up and says, Hampton Keithley, you remember me? And I got, I'm horrible with names. I was trying to introduce my best friend who lived next door to me for three years, and I got into seminary with him for five years, and another guy that I didn't know for ten years, and I forgot both their names. <clears throat> so, but I remembered him, and I'm thinking, Tim, what are you doing here? No, I said, Tim, what are you doing here? And I'm thinking... Christian scientist, you know. He goes, you remember that conversation we had in high school? He goes, I started doubting my own religion and here I am. So, so for some people, you know, if you can show them that they're being intellectually dishonest, then that can be a part of the evangelistic um, process. So the next reason we need it is we need to understand the spiritual warfare aspect. Because sometimes you sit there and you, you think you've got the guy pinned down with the most obvious logic and they won't admit it. And um, Frank Turek wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. He travels the country giving lectures and he said that he'll ask atheists sometimes, if Christianity were true, would you believe? And they go usually have a big loud no. It's not about the truth. <clears throat> and they don't believe because there's actually a spiritual battle going on. And the Bible talks about this in several places. Uh, Matthew 16, 1 through 4 says, When the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he said, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather because the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today because the sky is red and darkening. You know how to judge correctly the appearance of the sky, but you cannot evaluate the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. So, their rational ability worked fine when it came to something like predicting the weather, but um, when it came to looking at the signs that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was fulfilling prophecies and all the miracles he were doing, was doing, um, they wouldn't accept that. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, 17, it says, So I say this and insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing, among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, so that they would not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. So we see that Satan has blinded the, mind, the minds of people. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 2 Timothy 2.23-26, 2, 
but reject foolish and ignorant controversies because you know they breed infighting. And the Lord's slave must not engage in heated disputes, but be kind toward all, an apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance and then knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap where they are held captive to do his will. So we see that they are held captive by Satan. And Romans 1.18, um, I won't read the whole thing. We know it very, very well. But they suppress the truth and everything should be clear to them through creation. It should be obvious, but people don't want to believe. They become futile in their thoughts and their, and their senseless hearts were darkened. So. <clears throat> so the next time you're in a discussion with someone and they refuse to admit the most obvious point or they fail to come to the obvious conclusion, one thing you need to remember is that they are not the enemy. They are the victims. And yes, they are rebellious, but they almost can't help it. You know, because they're captives of Satan. So what is our response? We go back to that Second Timothy passage and we can see that um, verse 25 that we need to be um, we can correct the opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance and then knowledge of the truth. Okay, and they will come to their senses. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, um, for though we live as human beings, we do not wage war according to human standards, for the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons, but are made powerful by God for tearing down strongholds. We tear down arguments and every arrogant obstacle that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. Yet do it with courtesy and respect. Sometimes apologists get a bad rap and people you know, think that they're you know, abusive. And, you know, and some are, but that's, they're not doing it the, the right way. They're not doing it according to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, I think that the language in um, the Armor of God passage is consistent with battling for the truth and shows the spiritual nature of the conflict. Finally, be strong in the Lord, relying on His mighty strength. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the devil's strategies. For our struggle is not against human opponents, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers in the darkness around us, and evil spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. For this reason, take up the whole armor of God so you may be, be able to stand, take a stand whenever evil comes. And when you have done everything you could, you will be able to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth around your waist and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, being firm-footed in the gospel of peace, in addition to having clothed yourselves with these things, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to put out all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Also, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, so I think our response is that we need to learn the truth and be ready to give a defense 
we get the word apologetics from the word apologia, which means to defend um, in 1 Peter 3.15 where it talks about that. Because we have the truth on our side and we need to use it. The third reason I think that we need to study is because of this a culture war that's going on. And um, William Lane Craig wrote a book called Reasonable Faith. And he points out that we need to see beyond the evangelism of the individual and recognize that a battle is going on for the whole, whole culture. And the concept of a culture war uh, is a, fits our topic because a culture war is really a clash between worldviews. You've got the, the atheist worldview, humanist worldview, fighting against the Christian worldview. And I know that, you know, most of us, 50 years old or so, look back and go, things are a lot different now than they were when we were, we were kids. You know, why, why has our culture declined so fast? And, you know, I, the, you could write a whole book on the subject, but I think what escalated things was back in the around 1900s, early 1900s, you had liberalism from Europe come into Harvard and Yale and Princeton, and they started denying inerrancy of scripture and the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and hell and all kinds of stuff. And so most of the fundamental Christians who believed in the fundamentals fled and they started Dallas Theological Seminary and Wheaton and Moody and they kind of left the battle. And so Harvard, Princeton and Yale had nobody there to fight except for what Jay Gresham Machen, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> so, you know, he stayed and fought, but not too many did. And and I think that allowed the liberalism to grow. And today, you know, none of those are seminaries anymore. So that happened in the 20s. In the 30s, you had the Humanist Manifesto and the rise of secular humanism. And John Dewey was in charge of most public education things. He was the most respected guy in public education. And he, he helped write the Humanist Manifesto. And um, so he redesigned this public education system with more of a goal of social engineering than of education. And um, in the 1976, a, a guy named Paul Blanchard, who was a well-known humanist, bragged, I think the most important factor moving us toward a secular society has been the educational factor. Our schools may not teach Johnny to read properly, but the fact that Johnny is in school until he is 16 tends to lead toward the elimination of religious superstition. I think John Lennon's song, Imagine, is sort of their anthem. Yeah, I think you're right. So all those people educated under this new philosophy in the 30s, 40s, 50s, when they grew up, they became teachers and lawyers and judges. And what did they start doing in the 60s? tossed prayer out of school and took the Ten Commandments off the wall. And so we've, you know, seen this escalate. You know, those guys planned ahead to change the culture. And they waited their 40 years. And now, you know, that's why in our, our lifetime we've seen such a rapid change. And I don't think anybody needs convincing that the public education system is turning out morally bankrupt students. So... Um, another thing that's going on during all this, during the culture war, is something called modernism and postmodernism. And you're going to hear those kind of terms a lot when you're reading articles about worldviews. <clears throat> and in 
And prior to 1500, people believed in um, in God. The church was the center of the town. It was the center of social life. They believed in miracles. They believed in the supernatural. But a whole bunch of stuff happened in the 1500s. And the Renaissance and the Reformation began. And you had Martin Luther and the whole, you know, the Reformation and the religious side. But there... There was a huge renaissance with the Sir Francis Bacon and all the scientists. And information became available because of the printing press with Gutenberg. And so science just took off. And um, I was teaching physics and chemistry to Logan recently and reading through all that stuff. And I'm, it's amazing what those guys did back in 15, 1600s with the limited technology and tools that they had. <clears throat> But the myth, um, reality became what you could see and measure with science. And the myth of progress captivated the world. And men came to believe that science would solve all the problems of mankind. Science was going to cure all diseases. It was going to control the weather. It was going to end poverty, bring about world peace. And you had world fairs that touted the marvels of the modern age. So everybody was, you know... Banking on science. But that kind of ended after World War II. Because um, what was the war to end all wars? World War I. Well, I can remember reading a Lorraine Bettner's book on uh, Calvinism. And he was talking about how the world was getting to be a better place. And we were bringing about the millennium. And I went, oh, 1933. <clears throat> okay, um, World War II happened and the Holocaust happened and I think people got disillusioned with that. People, we weren't bringing about world peace. We weren't curing all the diseases. Cancer was on the rise. and um, Science wasn't solving men's problems like they thought. And so, um, modernism was weak on relationships. You've heard the term, just a cog in the machine. You know, that was kind of the attitude. And so I think science, society started rejecting science as the answer to man's problems and started looking more to spirituality. But we've just gone through this whole period where they'd been talk, teaching us that it was science versus faith. It was reason versus faith. And so they had kind of divorced religious experience from fact. And so we ended up with people looking to, you know, any kind of spiritual experience for the answer. Now, I like to describe the difference between modernism and postmodernism by thinking about commercials. So when I was a kid, how did Pepsi advertise their soda? What was the commercials? Anybody remember? Oh, come on. Huh? That's right. They had the Pepsi challenge, the Pepsi taste test. Four out of five people chose Pepsi. It's a fact, right? When the guy advertised Tide and said it was better than Sheer, what was he wearing? White lab coat. Why? He's a scientific authority, right? When they advertised trucks, it was all about how many cubic inches of space was in the cab and the torque and the... The pulling, you know, it was, all, it was all statistics. So how do they advertise sodas now? What's the 
Coke commercials. Aren't they spinning on their head and doing weird things? And you know, it's all about experience, right? You're just supposed to be a pepper. <laughs> That's right. Um, and how do they advertise trucks? Got good-looking guys and gals driving across, you know, these rough terrain and going through rivers and stuff, right? None of us will ever do that, right? Huh? They're seeing the world. That you're right. They're seeing the world. They're. It's all about experience. Okay. Right. Okay. So then. So you kind of got a feel for modernism versus postmodernism. Modernism was about the scientific facts, and postmodernism is really about existentialism. Is a big word, but it means experience. Okay. Any thoughts? Questions? Okay. This is a long quote, five pages, but it's William Lane Craig, and it's his view on postmodernism. Now, I can imagine some of you thinking, but don't we live in a postmodern culture in which these appeals to traditional apologetic arguments are no longer effective? Since postmodernists reject the traditional canons of logic, rationality, and truth, rational arguments for the truth of Christianity no longer work. Rather, in today's culture, we should simply share our narrative and invite people to participate in it. Tell them about our experience. Okay? So that's what people are saying. In my opinion, this sort of thinking could not be more mistaken. The idea that we live in a postmodern culture is a myth. In fact, a postmodern culture is an impossibility. It would be utterly unlivable. Nobody is a postmodernist when it comes to reading the labels on a medicine bottle versus a box of rat poison. If you've got a headache, you'd better believe that texts have objective meaning. People are not relativistic when it comes to matters of science, engineering, and technology. Rather, they're relativistic and pluralistic in matters of religion and ethics. But that's not postmodernism. That's modernism. Remember I said modernism had this big division between science and religion, science versus faith. Okay, So he's saying it's still around. That's just old-line positivism and verificationism, and he defines those, which held that anything you can't prove with your five senses is just a matter of individual taste and emotive expression. We live in a cultural milieu which remains deeply modernist. People who think that we live in a postmodern culture have thus seriously misread our cultural situation. Indeed, I think that getting people to believe that we live in a postmodern culture is one of the craftiest deceptions that Satan has yet devised. Modernism is passe, he tells us. You needn't worry about it any longer, so forget about it. It's dead and buried. Meanwhile, modernism, pretending to be dead, comes around again in a fancy new dress of postmodernism, masquerading as a new challenger. Your old arguments and apologetics are no longer effective against this new arrival, we're told. Lay them aside. They're of no use. Just share your narrative. When the, when the discussion was about the facts, the Christians win. Because we have the truth on our side. Okay? And so, the argument is, that's gone. We don't use facts anymore. It's all about experience. 
Indeed, some weary of the long battles with modernism actually welcome the new visitor with relief. And so Satan deceives us into voluntarily laying aside our best weapons of logic and evidence, thereby ensuring unawares modernism's triumph over us. If we adopt this suicidal course of action, the consequences for the church in the next generation will be catastrophic. Christianity will be reduced to but another voice in a cacophony of competing voices and each sharing its own narrative and none commending itself as the objective truth about reality, while scientific naturalism shapes our culture's view of how the world really is. So Christianity will be reduced to but another voice. What's question 11 on your test? Yeah, so how would you answer that? Could you prove to a Mormon that my warm feeling in my heart is better than his burning in his bosom? Right? No. You can't. I think that's a trick question. The answer is we can't. Yeah, it's important that Christianity changes me, you know, but it's not proof because experience is subjective. Okay. And one of the most important words in Mormon evangelism is truth. Because it is true. Because they use that phrase over and over again because it's true. Yeah. I believe because it's true. Phil? Yeah, I'm just a little concerned with his take in general on especially the state the best weapons of logic and evidence. I'm certainly a little younger. But I mean, I think it's both and. I think he sets up a false dichotomy. Wherein, in the past, it was, we'll answer with our logic, but leave experience out of it. Now Christians want to answer with experience and leave logic out of it. In essence, isn't it the classical faith mm-hmm. that we, we have both on our side? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, we have experience that satisfies because we know true God. Right. And, and we have objective evidence in the scripture that God is who he says he is. You know? I mean, what do you think? Well, I, I, like I said, I think that experience is important. It's just that you can't, if that's where the battle ends up, it's my experience versus the other person's experience. And, you know, some people are willing to go blow themselves up for their, you know, belief and, you know, their, their, their tradition and experience that they've grown up with. So, you know, you know, we really need to, we have to have something that's more objective. You know, like I said, experience is important. If it didn't change you, and I think that your personal testimony is certainly important in the, evan- you know, when you're doing evangelism and you're trying to, you know, talk to someone. Um, so, but I think what he's trying to say is this postmodernism is trying to just totally throw out all the facts. And if all we're left with is this other then we're in big trouble because we're just one of many options. I share my personal experience, but I was led in my experience to Christ because of the text, because of the record written down through the centuries of what God has done with his mm-hmm. people. The prophecies that he had made became true. And uh, I guess the final most complete one would be the best argument for the existence of God is the existence of Israel. Okay. They promised what they would do and what would happen to them. 
and through that text. Yeah, well, certainly the biblical prophecies are a great proof. So, yeah, well, the question then um, is, are we in a postmodern culture? Because he's trying to say we're not. I disagree. I hate to disagree with William Lane Craig, but I think we are because everybody thinks we are. Okay. Um, do I have any evidence? <laughs> I feel like we are. <clears throat> it's true for me, if not for you. Okay. So the faith versus reason dichotomy division is still there. I mean, we hear it all the time. We talk about science. They just dismiss Christians and their opinions because that's religion, right? And people are looking to experience for meaning. They're not looking to science for meaning. And I think people are really okay these days with believing totally contradictory things. Okay? So he's right. Postmodernism is unlivable. You stop at red lights because, you know, the other people are going through the green lights, whatever. Um, I think he's just saying we can't get to the point where it's just experience. And his book is called Reasonable Faith. And I think that the point of this whole course is going to be that the Christian's faith is not blind faith. It's reasonable faith. It's the most reasonable faith. C.S. Lewis was way ahead of his time. Postmodernism supposedly didn't start until the 60s, right? In 1940, he wrote screw tape letters. And on the first page of the book, Dear, my dear Wormwood, I note what you say about guiding our patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a trifle naive? It sounds as if you suppose that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. So Screwtape's warning the demon, don't get into a, you know argument. That might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as the result of a chain of reasoning. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it's strong or stark or courageous, that it's the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. I remember when I first read that, I was like, oh, wow. Way ahead of his time. Jargon and slogans. You can't legislate morality. That's the only thing you can legislate. Anything else is tyranny. You know, can you, how do you deal with when someone says that? You know, what do you, how do you come back, you know, argue with that? Women should be able to control their own health care choices. Right? <clears throat> it's okay for you to have religious convictions, just don't let it affect public policy. These are the kind of slogans and jargon that we hear. 
And it's faith versus reason is the, another one. So, Screwtape knew that we couldn't argue about, they couldn't argue about facts. They needed to get the conversation out in, um, into the experience realm and make people think it was cool or something, not worry about it, whether it was true. A couple of weeks ago, a guy sent me a link to the evidenceunseen.com website. Um, we're learning the principle here. Now I want to go and kind of look and see what the other side is saying. Let's analyze what they're saying so we can kind of learn how to, to, to deal with these things. Um, they say in their article, um, theologian Myron Pinner recently released a 193-page book against apologetics titled The End of Apologetics, Christian Witness in a Postmodern Context. So there we have our postmodern word. So you have to, you know, that needs to just be second nature when you hear that. It says, it was published by Baker. It isn't difficult to discern the central thesis of Pinner's book. And he writes, <clears throat> apologetics itself might be the single biggest threat to genuine Christian faith that we face today. Page 12, page 49. I suggest modern Christian apologetics subtly undermines the very gospel it seeks to defend and does not offer us a good alternative to the skepticism and ultimate meaninglessness of the modern secular condition. Or on page 110. I now wish to redescribe truth by changing metaphors from correspondence to edification. There's so much wrong with that, I don't know where to start. <clears throat> Um, a lot of times they confuse things with all their big words. Okay, metaphor. A simile is like or as, but a metaphor is just it is. Okay, so truth is whatever. Correspondence. There's a correspondence theory of truth that says truth corresponds to reality. Okay, and so if I it was a Christian scientist and I told you that that chair you're sitting in doesn't really exist, it's a figment of your imagination, there's... You could, you know, feel it. You know it's holding you up. You can see it. And you go, that doesn't correspond to reality. That's false. Okay? So what he wanted to do is say, truth is no longer correspondence with reality. Truth is edification. It's what builds you up. It's what improves you. Okay? So we're back to, does it work? Pragmatism. You know, does it affect my experience or whatever. Okay? So he just did away with truth and facts with that statement. So, he also, they said in the article, only used, used less than a dozen scriptures in his 193 book to prove his point because he doesn't have any scriptural support for it. So what has he got left? Rhetoric? Hyperbole? And so he makes statements like, apologetics itself might be the single biggest threat to genuine Christian faith that, faith that we face today. Is it apologetics what Paul was doing all through the book of Acts where he speaks? That's right. Paul was doing that and Jesus was doing that when he talked with the Pharisees a lot of times. He speaks of arguing. Mm -hmm. Not the four spiritual laws and prayed this prayer, but he spent right. a great deal of time verbally fighting it out with those around him. He did. Well... I have to ask if I could prove to you that Jesus was raised from the dead 
and here's all the historical proofs, how does that jeopardize your faith? If this guy, what this guy's saying is true, the best thing that can happen is we find Jesus' bones in the tomb somewhere. Then we can really have faith. Right? And so, um, yeah, it's just, talk about nonsense. But this is a good example of what we were talking about earlier where we don't care about facts. We live in a postmodern society. It's just about our experience. We just tell them our story and that's supposed to convince people. You know, come share in my experience. Come be part of my religion. It's fun. Whatever. Well, I want to go on and say something. Christianity Today. Baker published it. And Christianity Today said it was a great book. So, I think it shows that we just really need to be what Berean believers when we read this stuff and go, you know, is this logical? Is this scriptural? You know, we need to learn how to evaluate. And I think you should go look that article up and read it. It's a good example of how they take what this guy's saying and, and break it down. And I'm going to do that with a couple other things later on um, so we can kind of practice working through some of those. <clears throat> Um, what Stan was saying, the next thing is we need it. Christians need to know this stuff. I've had people say that my faith was great until I went to world views class, and now I don't, you know, I didn't know there were all these other views, and now I'm not even sure anymore. And I don't think that is what usually happens, but um, I think that. Most Christians don't know the reasons why they believe things. There was somebody made a statement years ago, I can remember. Discipleship is more than the transfer of information from one notebook to another. Anybody else remember hearing that? So what did they do? They threw away all the notebooks. And they don't transfer any information in the discipleship process. It's just all about relationship now. Being authentic, whatever. <clears throat> That's right. So we have a whole church full of untrained people because we, we don't teach the, you know, the doctrines and we don't teach the... How, how do you defend your faith? Why do we believe this? And we are afraid of showing the other side because we're not maybe... We're, you know, there are certain issues that you need to hold lightly and there's some issues that you can hold too firmly. <clears throat> So, when an untrained Christian, when a you know, kid goes off to college and he's not been trained and he hears stuff from his professor, then he's you know, a lot more likely to be persuaded than someone who's been prepared. Now, you've got all the appealing, you know, sin is fun and it, you know, they're out from under the adults, the parent supervision, and so... There's more than just the fact that he doesn't know the truth. But I do think that if he does know the truth and he hears somebody make a statement, then he should know, you know, that will be a, a good defense. <clears throat> so, one of the reasons we don't train, the, train our kids is because we don't know it ourselves. So, I think it's, it's important that we be reading books like Reasonable Faith or Love the Lord with All Your Mind and... <clears throat> I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Mere Christianity. There's a lot of good books that we should be reading those things. 
So, why we need to study? We needed it for evangelism so we can witness to people, but we've got to recognize that they're not going to be convinced by logic alone. They, you know, it's a spiritual battle. The Holy Spirit's got to be working on them. We need to recognize that they're not the enemy. We need to do it with um, gentleness. And then, you know, most adults that come to faith come because of some, you know, truth and logic that they come to recognize. It's part of the process. And we really need to understand the culture war. It explains so much when you're watching TV and you see the politicians and you hear what's going on. I just watched an hour-long video last night on the new core something. Yeah, what do they call that? Common core. 45 states have adopted this. And this guy from Hillsdale College goes through and explains, you know, how they're changing it so that we actually will never read a book as we go through high school. <clears throat> and so, there was no stories. He called his book The Story Killers. He says, there are no stories being read anymore where you learn courage, stick to you know, any kind of character building stuff. And, and so, um, you know, it's a culture war and, and we need to be able to fight it. And, and I think it's extremely important for Christians to, to learn this stuff just so that you are more firm in your faith and you're not um, challenged by the flaming arrows of the evil one. So, any questions or comments?